Hi, ABC family. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you joined us. My name is Gerald. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Atascadero Bible Church, and I think that's the best job in the world. I get to spend my week pointing people to Jesus. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we have three things that we want to point you toward in terms of investing in life here at ABC. First thing, you can invest in physical life. We're having a blood drive on June 8th, and that's a way that you can tangibly give back, literally giving the gift of physical life during this season of blood shortage. So mark your calendars for June 8th and plan to come and invest in the physical life of our community. Secondly, you can invest in the family life of the church. We'll be having a church lunch on June 5th, Sunday, June 5th. So you don't have to plan the menu that day. Just come to church and be ready to sit down and enjoy a meal and get to know some other members of the family of ABC over a delicious lunch. And thirdly, you can invest in the spiritual life of the children of our community. Every June, we hold our VBS, Vacation Bible School, and we invite the kids from the community to come to campus, and we build into them. We, we give them opportunities to have lots of fun, to make crafts, and to hear the life-changing story of the gospel of the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it takes hundreds of volunteers. And we would like you to come and consider investing in the spiritual life of the children of our community. And if you want to find out more information about that, you can call the church office or you can email sandy at abcchurch.org. So those three ways, physical life, family life, and spiritual life. Lean in, invest in God's economy. When we give, we get back. Hope you have a great week, folks. Love you. Well, good morning. Welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, whether uh, you're traveling this weekend, maybe you're homesick, um, or uh, various reasons you're, you're doing church at home uh, this weekend, I'm really glad you're able to tune in. Um, we are plowing right ahead through the Gospel of Matthew and just learning some profound things from Jesus. Um, I hope and trust that today is no exception to that. Um, but I want to just simply remind you, we'd love to have you on campus. So come on down. Um, our services are at 8, 9, and 10.45. A couple of other fun things going on that uh, I know we, we already mentioned, but um, with all of the kids' activities, uh, talking about VBS and talking about summer um, and everything that's happening here coming up pretty quick, um, just want to remind you, um, if, uh, if you've ever considered serving, um, particularly with kids' ministry, it's super rewarding and such a, a privilege um, and I know it sounds like work, but it really does end up um, paying off big time just in terms of the reward. Um, and so I'm just inviting you uh, to consider maybe serving at our VBS this summer. Um, and if not, um, we also have a whole um, schedule full of kids ministry opportunities for the whole summer. And so if you're interested at all in serving in kids ministry, um, you can email our kids ministry director, sandy at abcchurch.org. Um, so we'd love to have you jump in in that regard. Anyway, we're going to jump into Matthew. Um, before we do, though, uh, it's spring and uh, it's wedding season, kind of heading towards summer. And so I thought I would show you one of my favorite clips from one of my favorite wedding movies. Um, not my favorite movie, but one of my favorite wedding movies um, called Father of the Bride. Take a look at this. <laughs> 
Nina said as long as I was escaping, would I mind escaping to the market and picking up something for dinner? Sure, that was all I needed, a busy supermarket. I needed to drive, mellow out, get my mind off the wedding. But mellowing out was not in the cards. Excuse me, sir, what are you doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I want to buy eight hot dogs and eight hot dog buns to go with them. But no one sells eight hot dog buns. They only sell 12 hot dog buns. So I end up paying for four buns I don't need. So I am removing the superfluous buns. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but you're going to have to pay for all 12 buns. They're not marked individually. Yeah. You want to know why? Because some big shot over at the Wiener Company got together with some big shot over at the Bun Company and decided to rip off the American public. Because they think the American public is a bunch of trusting nitwits who pay for Getting things security. they don't need rather than make a stink. Well, they're not ripping off this nitwit anymore because I'm not paying for one more thing I don't need. George Banks is saying no! Who's George Banks? Me! Why don't we just calm down now, sir? I'll tell you why we don't calm down. Because you're not excited. It takes two people for a we to calm down, doesn't it? Uh, that I don't know, sir. I'm just the assistant manager of a supermarket. But I'll tell you this. If you don't pipe down and pay for those buns, I'm going to call the police. Oh, right. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, right. That's right. Hey, right. Hey, hey, come here. Uh -huh. Come here. Uh -huh. Come here. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh my goodness. So the mantra of our society, <laughs> we have George Banks losing it in the store and you're watching him thinking, keep it together. Just keep it together. And it becomes the slogan and the phrase that we hear and we repeat and we might say it mentally again and again, particularly in seasons of busyness and exhaustion, just keep it together. Maybe your parents, um, maybe you're a parent and just holding on uh, to the end of the school year right now, just thinking we've got to just hold this schedule together. It feels like we're, you know, maybe patching the holes in the boat with um, bubble gum and duct tape, but we just got to hold it together. Let's keep things floating. I can't tell you how many times I've said that in the last couple of weeks or how many times people have asked me, hey, how are you holding up? Are you, are you staying above water? And I'm looking with a smile going, yeah, I think so. How, how are you holding up? You know, whether you're a student heading towards finals week, um, thinking I just need to keep it together, or maybe you have out of town family visiting with you right now and you're thinking 24 more hours, I need to keep it together. This, this last week, um, my wife, actually two weeks ago now, uh, my wife went on a trip with, uh, 25 middle school kids. She was a chaperone with our daughter and um, they stayed in an Airbnb um, with, so they had 35 people total or 37 or something. They stayed in an Airbnb with two bathrooms and then they had a stomach bug like go through. Um, just, I'll spare you the mental pictures. Um, but imagine that five day long middle school trip with 25 kids 
trying to hit all the theme parks in Southern California and uh, sharing bathrooms with sickness. Just keep it together. Just hold on a couple more days. We can do this. We can make this. Or maybe you're planning a wedding <clears throat> and you just need to buy hot dogs and they only sell packages of eight and packages of 12 buns and you can't keep it together anymore. Well, I have good news for you this morning, but first some bad news. So we're gonna get to the good news. Uh, let's take a look at the bad news. Turn with me in your Bible to chapter five of Matthew, and uh, we are gonna look at this disclaimer Jesus gives for his teaching that's gonna get real hard here um, in part of this chapter here. So let's pray, and uh, we're gonna read God's word together this morning. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Sometimes it um, stings, sometimes it encourages, sometimes it corrects, sometimes it uplifts. And this morning, Lord, I pray that more than anything, your word would give us the permission to release, to exhale, to rely on you, to trust in you in profound ways. And so, Lord, speak to us right through your word and show us what you want us to learn this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Again, Jesus is teaching from the hilltop here. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think <clears throat> that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth <clears throat> pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus unfolds this sort of kingdom citizenship plan. And as he does, he's addressing the assumption that the Jews would have thought he might be dismissing the law. And he says, no, no, I'm not dismissing the law. We're not coming to abolish the law, not coming to negate the law. We're coming to fulfill it. And Jesus is going to bring this fulfillment in this amazing way later in the gospel, but we're not quite there yet. And so we live in this tension with his Jewish audience asking, what is he saying about the law? Because if he's talking about fulfilling the law and yet my righteousness has to be even better than the most righteous person, the scribes and the Pharisees, I don't know how to make sense or peace with that. I think there would honestly be more concern with this audience that Jesus would be dismissive of the law. And so you and I read this and say, what does the law have to do with me today in a New Testament church age, living in the gospel freedom? What does the law have to do with me? And we're going to try to answer that. But remember, this audience was not asking that question. They're asking, what does the law not have to do with everything? Everything was the law. How important was the law? And so as he's preaching, saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus is getting nods and amens. Come on, Jesus, preach. We're law keepers. Yeah, we, we're all for righteousness. But then he finishes with, well, your righteousness, though, has to exceed even the scribes and the Pharisees. And there's this 
record screeching halt in the conversation where they look up and say, wait, what? Even better than them? The best law keepers? In fact, it's going to get worse because as he continues on in his teaching, he says, and it's not just following the law, it's also your heart and your mind. It's not just that you do all the outward things correctly. You also need to have the right motive and purity of heart. In fact, you've got to have the right thought process even. It gets very hard, but the bottom line is in this passage, the law is not going anywhere. Keep it together. Maintain the law. Go back to verse 17 with me for a second. Let me read. Do not think, he says again, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Later he's going to say, not a dot or iota. I like how the King James Version phrases it. Not a jot or a tittle. Nothing is going to be removed from the law. Every word, every punctuation, every paragraph, every form. And in their mind, the Jewish audience, the listener was thinking all 600 of these laws put before our forefathers will remain intact. Keep it together. The law will remain. It's not voided. And the law we see has a place even in the New Testament, which starts to be a a challenge for us when we talk about grace and we talk about forgiveness. And so we're going to try to make some sense of that this morning as we walk through this. What is the role of the law for the New Testament Christian? Uh, Paul in Romans begins this conversation for us in chapter 2 when he starts to explain the importance of the law, the fact that the law will remain. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, for all have sinned without the law also will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And he goes on and continues to talk about the fact that the law stands as the ultimate um, standard, that it's not going away. The law continues to to be the, the measuring stick from which every believer is put up against. And Jesus, in this case, is not offering some kind of cavalier pass to sin. The message is maintain order, maintain righteousness, keep the law together. And by law, he's clearly referencing the Old Testament, the law, the covenant between God and man, God and Moses, the prophets, those who spoke of the law, addressed the law, the Old Testament history that told the story of Israel and their contention with the law, and then Of course, the wisdom literature, he's referring to the Old Testament. The law, the Old Testament, will not pass away. It's really important. It provides the platform and the foundation for us to discuss what a redeemer means, what what the purpose of a redeemer is. In fact, uh, Ken Barker says it this way, instead of the Old Testament's real and abiding authority must be understood through the person and the teaching of him whom it points to and who so richly fulfills it. That Jesus is speaking of the law and the integrity of the law and the importance of the law as the one who will ultimately be the fulfiller of the law. And so he's saying in this passage, we keep the law. We keep it together. We don't dismiss it. We don't remove it. We don't degrade it. The law is intact. Keep it together because the law 
will be fulfilled. Again, second half of 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The entire Old Testament then, the law that's being referred to here, is all pointing to Jesus. See, we, we start to understand that the law and the gospel go hand in hand. That the standard doesn't change, but the fulfillment and the magnitude of the fulfillment gets highlighted. The more integrity the law has, the more integrity the gospel has. And this key word, in my opinion, the most important word in this entire passage is this word fulfilled. It's the Greek word plero, an action of singular completion at a given point. If you know a little bit about uh, biblical Greek, you know that the tense is really important. It's not like our English tense where we just simply have past, present, and future. There are many tenses in Greek, and so when we look at the tense of this word fulfilled, it's an aorist, active, infinitive tense. Aorist infinitive meaning that there's a singular point of completion and aorist active meaning that it's an ongoing action. And so it's ongoing singularly completed, if that makes sense. I know it's hard for us to get our English minds around that, but it's the continual verb, the continual action that will have a singular point of completion that the fulfillment of the law has come and is coming. I like how James Moffat says, Jesus Christ did not displace the law. He will talk with both of them. He, he didn't displace the law and the prophets, he says. He will talk with both of them upon a mountain where the three, law, prophet, redeemer, will meet and reveal the unity of all things. That the fulfillment, the completion, the already accomplished fulfillment of the law brings this beautiful picture, this beautiful harmony to the three, the law, the prophets, the redeemer, speaking together in unity, in harmony, in conversation that there is law and yet there is redeemer. There is prophet speaking to law and yet there's fulfillment in the prophecy. Jesus came to bring this all to a head. And the message of the gospel is not let down your guard, lower your standards. The message of the gospel is the law will be fulfilled, completed, finished, every letter. Withhold the standard, maintain integrity. Let's see the law stay intact because when the law is intact, that means the weight of the gospel is far more powerful. The necessity of a redeemer is far stronger. The void, the, the, the gap, the chasm between us and the standard of the law is far broader. And we see the hand of God working with far more might. And we see the, the, the personal investment of our redeemer Jesus on display with so much more glory and power. The gospel necessitates the law. The law necessitates the gospel. They go hand in hand, the entire Old Testament leads us up to this climactic moment where we're begging for the, the answer, we're begging for the solution, fulfillment for this law because it hasn't been able to be fulfilled. So this law, as we keep it together, we keep the law with the gospel hand in hand. We keep the prophets with the redeemer hand in hand. As we keep this together, the law does not relax. The standard, the bar doesn't get dropped. 
In fact, Jesus says 19, therefore anyone or whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's this maintaining high standard that seems really challenging, especially when we hear this message from Jesus and we start to hear um, his undertones of the the kingdom of God being altogether different than the kingdom of the world or even the religious kingdom that he starts to talk about blessed are the mourning and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who are persecuted and the peacemakers. And it starts to feel like there's a different view, a different perspective on how we see the world and religion. And that he doubles down on what they knew and understood about the law by saying, no, you've got to keep it. In fact, you can't relax the law. And so the tension grows. So when I tell you we got to keep it together, the burden starts to feel even heavier as we sit under the weight of what the law requires, under the weight of, of what Jesus is calling his listeners to. And yet there's a, there's a language shift here that I think is really important to pick up on. If you notice the difference between verse 19 and verse 20 is that he talks about the uh, relaxing of the least of these commandments and being least in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, he talks about unless our righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees that will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about righteousness and relaxing the law in the same vein as a moral code of conduct that seems to be written on or inscribed on our hearts. That the covenant between God and man wasn't necessarily 600 ceremonial laws as much as it was a moral code that he had placed in the heart of every single believer that he had given us conscience that he would, he would give us the Holy Spirit to guide and to lead so that we would feel burdened by our breaking of the law, burdened by our sin, burdened by our depravity. And so when Jesus says, when, when you relax that, you're going to be least of the kingdom of heaven because there is a standard that God has upheld, a standard God has given you. The moral law means being the least or the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, depending on how you view it. And I think what's happening here is less than the 600 ceremonial laws, the, the point that some of these Pharisees were getting held up on, you know, their, their cleansing rituals or their timing rituals or some of the things that they, they would um, limit themselves and others from in order to kind of create this fence around the law so they wouldn't even come close up to this point of the law. Jesus is talking more about the morality that existed in the early days when God gave a covenant to Moses on stone tablets on Mount Sinai saying, don't put other people in front of the one true creator God. Don't set up for yourself idols. Don't covet what's not yours. Don't be deceitful, don't lie, don't slander, don't kill. All the things that he's saying, there's a moral code built into every human heart and that ought not be relaxed, that ought not be dismissed. Let that stand, let that maintain integrity. 
Let that be the measure of righteousness that I've called every single human being to and allow for that very law to reveal the sin that has separated you from God. Again, Paul talks about it in Romans in such a helpful and profound way. He gets into chapter 7 and he starts to explain the use of the law for us today as believers under the new covenant. And it's really helpful. Let me just read a few of the verses from Romans 7 that I think will really... Help, under, help us understand what good is the law for us today. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The law it, in and of itself is morally neutral. That's, it's not sin in and of itself. Yet if it had not been for the law, he says, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Do you see what Paul's saying is if I didn't know what the standard was, if no one ever put the words in my mouth and gave me language, then I wouldn't know to call sin, sin. But because the law says you shall not covet and then my mind thinks, well, what is coveting? Oh yeah, certainly I've done that. Then now I understand and I own my own sin in the process. And so Paul is saying there's this perfect measuring stick called the law. And when you stand up next to the measuring stick and you see how you measure up, you begin to see yourself for who you really are, your own depravity, your own sin. You begin to realize my righteousness certainly does not exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. Paul goes on in verse 13, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Is it the law? If the law is good, then did the law bring death to me? By no means, he says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That it was the, the commandment, the law, the measuring stick, the mirror, if you will, that showed sin to be sin for me so that I could understand my own unrighteousness. So the law doesn't go away. The law is not voided. We don't throw out the first half of our Bible just because we now have grace and forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, we keep it as this measuring stick because when we look at ourselves in respect to the law, we start to realize that we don't measure up. And so when I say keep it together, keep the law, even exceed the law, don't relax on one, one single principle, we start to grow in this amazing pressure because we start to see ourselves in respect to the law and realize, I am not righteous. I'm not capable of keeping and maintaining the law. Again, look at verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, he says, enter the kingdom of heaven. It gets even harder than that. If you fast forward all the way up to verse 48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. And we have this convoluted message. And if you're struggling making sense of it, I'm right there with you thinking, I don't understand. I thought the gospel, the kingdom of God was a, an, a flipped upside down way of of living, that, that he who is poor will be rich, that he who is least will become great, that it wasn't about being the greatest or the best or the most righteous or the perfect. I thought that's what the gospel was about. You're right. 
We're gonna get there. But right now we're building this tension and Jesus is building this tension. He's presenting this perfect picture. He's saying there is a law and it must be upheld. There is a standard and it must be kept. There is a bar and it must not be lowered. That God's standard, God's justice, the integrity of his justice and his law warrants that every single human being must be perfect. And so the pressure's on. In fact, the pressure's growing. It's mounting. And we're looking at this passage thinking, when I hear the word and phrase, keep it together, I think I just need to maintain. And then I read this line in verse 48, that there's perfection required. And I realize that keeping it together means that the law requires perfection. And then I realize there is no possible way I can maintain that degree of perfection. Keep it together. Follow the law. Do good. Maintain. Don't lose your cool. And it's this perpetual message that I've kept telling myself now for weeks or maybe years. If if you're like me, that you've believed I can hold all these things together. I just got to be stronger. got to be smarter. I need to be a little bit more disciplined. And I can maintain and I can make sure I do all the right things and keep my life somewhat in order so that I don't get off course. And Jesus throws down this ultimate gauntlet. And he says, yeah, but you need to be perfect. So even if you're keeping it together, that's probably not enough. And we stop and and realize, gosh, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what Jesus is asking. Is that really what he's asking of me? That would be perfect as, as my heavenly father, that my righteousness has to be better than the best guy's? the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who did the best, that I have to actually do better than them? That feels like a ton of pressure. And I imagine the conversation between me and Jesus going something like this, that I would say, Jesus, there's no way I can keep all of the laws and all of the commandments. And Jesus saying, really? I'm saying, I mean, you're asking me to be perfect and yet I'm trying really hard. I'm trying to maintain and keep everything in order and trying to be more disciplined and trying to somehow keep my head and heart in the right place so that I can do all the right things, but I can't be perfect. Oh, really? You can't be perfect. But are you really telling me I, I need to be perfect? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But no one's perfect, Jesus. I can't be perfect. Interesting. So what are we supposed to do? And Jesus says, you know what? I got an idea. I got a plan. How about I be perfect for you? How about I fulfill all of those requirements for you? Because if it's true that you can't keep it together, if it's true that you can't, keep the law, if it's true that you can't be perfect, then we're going to need someone to do that for you. And Jesus, as he proceeds through the gospel and begins to teach a new way of living, a new kingdom mindset, a new testament, a new covenant with his people in which all of the debts are paid, in which all of the laws are kept, in which all things are held together 
by the one perfect human being. The one who was perfect as his heavenly father was perfect is saying, stop trying to keep it together. I already did it. The law's not going to go away. Let me be clear about that. But it's going to be fulfilled. Every T crossed, every I dotted, every requirement fulfilled, every debt paid, every wrong made right, every wound healed, everything done, finished, complete. And if you're feeling like you could never do that, like you could never measure up, like you would never be able to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect, then you're right. And that's what Jesus is saying to you and me as we walk through this passage. He's saying, you're right. You can't be perfect. Oh, interesting. You can't be better than the Pharisees. Oh, interesting. You can't be more perfect than the scribes who knew all the law. You can't hold those. You can't keep them. You can't fulfill them. That's why Jesus is here. That's why there's a Messiah. That's why the gospel is so powerful and so profound because he steps into our story and he says, let me keep it for you. Let me keep it together for you. Why don't you take some pressure off? Why don't you realize and own and admit that you can't do anything apart from me? And why don't you start boasting in your weakness instead of boasting in your strength and in your discipline and in your schedule and in all of the morality that you've somehow believed you could conjure up on your own? Stop that. Let that go. Release yourself from that and believe that when you are weak, you are strong through Jesus Christ. That in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, his power is made perfect in our weakness. It's the message of the gospel. Because when you are weak, then I am strong. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you and me. And the best thing you can do is realize that you can't do anything apart from him. The worst thing that you can do is try to keep it together. I told you there was good news this morning coming. The bad news is that you need to keep it together according to the law. The good news is that someone else did it for you. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired of trying to keep it together. I'm tired of trying to be strong. I'm tired of, of trying to outthink my next problem. I need someone to do it for me. I need help. So the good news is that when we get through this passage and the pressure seems to grow and increase, the bar seems to get higher and higher. In fact, next week as we look at the next passage, we start talking about anger and lust and other things that, that Jesus is going to double down on the law. It's not just your behavior. It's your mind. It's not just your motive. It's your heart. He's going to double down on the law. 
The bar is going to get higher and higher and higher. And the point is that when we see ourselves as compared up against the law and realize that we don't and we never will measure up to the righteous requirement set before us before God, that we can't do it and we release all of that pressure and control and say, God, do it for me. I can't keep it together. It's the beauty of the gospel, Jesus saying, I've got it fulfilled, done, completed. And it doesn't mean that we relax the law and we live with uh, some kind of cheap grace to go on doing whatever the heck we want to do. No, it means that now we are able in the power of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, in the work of the Holy Spirit, to live up and to measure up to that righteous standard that he's called us to, that one day when we meet him in heaven, we will have grown all the way up into that perfection, into that freedom, into the pressures off standard of righteousness that he has called us to, that we're growing and refining and moving and changing to become more like him every single day. But it requires that we first admit that we cannot do it. Let me just be really clear as we conclude this morning. If, if you haven't ever embraced the story of the gospel, if you've never come to the point in your life where you've been able to say, I can't do anything good apart from Jesus. I can't keep my family together. I can't keep my career on track. I can't keep my school and education done. I can't keep my finances in order. I can't keep my relationships healthy. I can't keep my habits in check. I can't keep it together. If you've never come to the point in your life where you've realized that, admitted that, owned that, and said, I need someone else to do it for me, I'm inviting you to that right here, right now. I'm inviting you to acknowledge that, to say, you know what, when I put my life up against the measuring stick of righteousness, when I compare myself to the, the law, so to speak, the standard, the moral standard of what God is calling every believer to, I don't measure up. And if you've never come to that point in your life where you've acknowledged that you're not measuring up and that you can't keep it together, I'm inviting you to consider whether you're there now. And if you're there and you want someone else to fulfill it for you, you want someone else to say, you know what, I did all the work. I lived perfect for you so that you didn't have to, so that you didn't have to keep trying to measure up. I'm inviting you into that story. It's called the story of the gospel. And the reality is that Jesus did live every single perfect law out. He fulfilled it to completion. And then he died as a sacrifice to cover over all of the imperfections of us, to forgive all of the sins, all the ways we didn't measure up, the entire world, he died as a perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven, so that when God looks at us, when God the Father, the perfect heavenly Father, looks down on us, he sees us as perfect. He sees us as righteous. We are called righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. And I kid you not, 
all it takes is acknowledging that. And all of the pressure of keeping it together is off. All it takes is you owning that. And going, I can't, I can't. I can't. I can't be perfect. I can't measure up. And Jesus is looking back at you as you say that and saying, I know. That's why I did it. That's why I lived it. That's why I died and sacrificed for it. And that's why I rose again to show you that there's victory over your sin. The gospel teaches that if we simply acknowledge that sin and own the fact that we're not measuring up, and if we believe that Jesus was perfect and he was God and he died as a sacrifice for our sin, and if we confess it with our mouth that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved and redeemed and seen as righteous by our Father, that all the pressure's off, that we can sit and rest and relax in him and in his good forgiveness and grace, knowing that he's gonna now perfect us to the point of completion. That we don't go backwards, that our righteousness doesn't start to wane, but it only increases as we grow in Christ. And so I'm inviting you, a very simple invitation this morning. Acknowledge that you can't keep it together and acknowledge that Jesus kept it all together and is keeping it all together. And he's inviting you to allow him to do it for you. And there's a very simple way to surrender that and it's through prayer. Just to simply say, God, I can't measure up. I don't keep all the law. I can't be perfect, but you are perfect and I need you to be perfect for me. I need your forgiveness to cover all of my imperfection. And I want to be seen as righteous based on what you did for me. And I want to follow you and I want to become more like you. And I want you to perfect my righteousness in you as I continue to grow. That's the prayer of a new believer. And I'm inviting you to pray now. In just a minute, I'm going to I'm going to pray. I'm going to put some words in your mouth for you if you want to follow along. And for those of you that have embraced Christ, that have said, yes, I'm redeemed. I am forgiven. I am healed. I'm seen as righteous. I've embraced the gospel. There is a chance that you're still trying to keep it together. And the reason I know that is because I try to do it all the time. There's a chance that you're trying to hold all the pieces in place that you're trying to out-strategize the details of your life, that you're trying to out-discipline some of the unrighteousness that creeps in from our flesh. And I'm telling you right now, you can't do it. Let it go. Release it. Allow Christ to be righteousness for you and realize that apart from him in your flesh, you can do nothing and there will be no fruit as long as you're trying to do things in your own strength. And the invitation for you is to allow for God to move in you, to work in you, to do it by the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and to stop trying to do it alone. I'm going to pray for you too. And for those of us that need a constant reminder, this is, this is the reminder this morning. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But Christ 
became righteous for the unrighteous, died for the ungodly, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the good news of the gospel. The pressure's off. Stop trying to keep it together. Let me pray. Father, we are so prone to trying to keep things together, to trying to operate in our own strength. So Lord, for some that have yet to come to that initial point of surrender, I pray with them and for them. I acknowledge that apart from you, I can do nothing. I acknowledge that when my life is put up against the measuring stick of perfect righteousness, when it's put up against the law, I fall short every time. And I acknowledge that Jesus Christ lived and fulfilled that law perfectly on my behalf. And so simply by confessing that I can't and confessing that he can and he did, but I can have the freedom that comes in the forgiveness of sin. And I confess right now with my mouth that Jesus Christ died and he rose again and he offered forgiveness and new life for all of those who would believe and I believe it. Lord, for anybody who might be praying that prayer for the first time, I ask that you would transform their life with power. That you would begin showing them the fruit of the gospel. That you would bring community around them. That they would lean in here at ABC and find a friend to tell, to process, to pray with. God, and for those that are continually trying to outpower, outwill, outstrengthen their unrighteousness, Lord, may we let it go. May we stop trying to keep it together and let you hold it all together. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for, for your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for seeing us as perfect. And we stand before you in that confidence this morning. In your precious name I pray. Thanks for joining us this morning. I uh, want to invite you um, to lean in and connect with another friend, family, community group, uh, whether it's a Bible study that you're already a part of um, or looking for an opportunity. Don't try to do this alone. Uh, don't try to figure this out alone. Do it with community. If you're looking for a place to lean in and connect, please give us a call down here at the church. We'd love to connect you with another family, a group, a Bible study. Um, and help you walk through this gospel message um, with others. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you back here next week.